0: This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM
1: 89.3.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Speaking of Asia podcast by The Straits Times. This is Ravi Velour, and I'm the paper's Asia columnist and an associate editor. This series of podcasts focuses on issues relevant to Asia and distills experience from my decades of covering the Asian continent. Today, I focus on the relatively unknown concept of feminist foreign policy. The concept is particularly relevant in the context of the ongoing crisis in the Ukraine, suffering in Afghanistan under Taliban rule, and the increasingly tense geopolitical situation in East Asia. My guest today is Edliani Rahman, a former Singapore diplomat and co-founder of the Global Diplomacy Lab. The lab was initiated by the German Foreign Office in 2014, and its patron is the German Foreign Minister. I've known Aliani for some years now, and I've been fascinated by the richness of her experience. She's worked for International Enterprise Singapore, then spent a decade at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. postings included Berlin and New Delhi. She then left the Foreign Office to work for a few years in the office of the Nobel Peace Laureate Kailash Satyarthi including at Mr. Satyarthi's Washington, D.C. office. There, she worked in preventing child trafficking, which is the issue for which Mr. Satyarthi won the Nobel. Currently, she's doing a doctoral program in public health at Harvard University and has just returned from Berlin, where she delivered a speech on feminist foreign policy vis-a-vis Ukraine. Welcome to Speaking of Asia, Aliani.
1: Thank you for having me. Eliani, most of us do
0: not know what a feminist foreign policy is. Could you explain it to my listeners?
1: Yes, of course, Ravi. In essence, feminist foreign policy is about strengthening the rights, resources, and representation of women and girls worldwide, as well as promoting diversity in societies. Now, how
0: advanced is this concept of a feminist foreign policy is it just another fanciful concept that really has no great relevance, or are there nations that actually follow it?
1: Globally, the term feminist Farm Policy, or FFP, is still contested. There is no single government definition of FFP, nor has there been any full cross-country comparisons of the impact and effectiveness of these policies. Several countries are actually implementing and have implemented FFP and these are Sweden, Canada, Luxembourg, France, Mexico, Spain, Libya, and Germany. I think FFP has huge relevance in this side, guys. Suppose we could reimagine a world where we stop looking at security from a militarized lens. Instead, women, children, and the most vulnerable in society are central to decision-making, and their needs are accounted for in every aspect of policymaking. This approach is what feminist foreign policy is all about. It may hold the key to getting to the roots of conflicts and challenge the current neoliberal underpinnings of international political discourse. The stark difference between realpolitik and feminist foreign policy as frameworks is that the latter brings the welfare of the vulnerable to the fore. You know, the
0: biggest geopolitical conflict of the day is unravelling in Europe, where Ukraine is clearly suffering And in Asia, if you look at Afghanistan, which is another theatre of geopolitical contest, that's turning out to be a great tragedy for women and children. Now, do you think an FFP could help here? And if so, what would be the contours of such a policy?
1: Definitely, Ravi. Let's talk about the ongoing war on Ukraine. I like the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's comment at a NATO summit recently. He said that the crazy macho invasion was a perfect example of toxic masculinity and called for more women in positions of power. If there was FFP in Russia, this would mean re-centering the priorities on citizens' welfare, not one man's vision for a greater Russian motherland. A man like Putin may not have been able to rise to power if its citizens start interrogating the global systems of power that leave millions of people in perpetual states of vulnerability. And FFP will also prioritize the lives and experiences of the most marginalized. Where realpolitik is focused on the state's interests as an actor, this new Russia will be examining the intersection of patriarchy, capitalism, racism, imperialism, and militarism. This means acknowledging the Ukrainian people as its own nation and not as Russia minor, and not stepping out non-Russian cultures and languages.
0: What about Afghanistan?
1: The same principle will apply for Afghan society. You'll be asking similar questions and how this will impact women and girls and the marginalized community in Afghanistan. Again, the priorities would be what will make maximize the welfare of citizens there in the country.
0: Now, stay on the subject of Afghanistan for a second, uh, which is closer to home than Ukraine is. You know, many of the governments uh, that are uh, being careful with aid to Afghanistan is that, uh, you know, they say that it will go to the Taliban, which will distribute it within their own folds, and it will not reach the people who really deserve it the most and who need it the most. So do you think by uh, sticking to that plank, uh, the uh, situation in uh, Afghanistan for women and children is actually getting worse?
1: If we were having FFP in the very beginning, the Taliban would not be coming to power because then you're interrogating the whole power hierarchy, the patriarchy that actually allowed the Taliban to come into power in the first place. If you read some of the reports that were published around the time the Taliban was gaining ascendancy, for example, the Brooklyn Institution's reports. Well, what you were seeing from the outside world, we from the outside was looking at really at Kabul and what was happening in Kabul, the rest of the countryside weren't as open. So for example, according to surveys conducted by the Brooklyn Institution, for example, a lot of the men were questioning why there were more female parliamentarians, why women were allowed to go out to work, why were there much more emancipation. And so these were the cultural norms. And were this to change, because were we to not to allow this to happen, you know, dismantling patriarchy or questioning the power asymmetry between men and women, then you would have a different society taking place. Then the aid restructuring, the aid distribution would be a very different equation altogether.
0: Aliani, just to stay on that subject of uh, Ukraine and Russia for a second, I realize that uh, you are a Russian speaker, that you actually studied in Moscow University, so you know something about what you're talking about uh, right from the ground up. But do you think that Ukraine itself, and if it had a feminist foreign policy in place, may have taken steps to prevent some of the events that led to the Russian invasion?
1: You know, there's two ways to answer that question. One way would be to say that feminist foreign policy does not exclude a muscular response to defend itself. And I think it's extremely fair. The other way would be also to look at it to see what could have happened in the first place to make sure that both sides could have come to the table. But, you know, in this actual discussion between Ukraine and Russia, I think we're talking about someone, Putin, who is actually not rational when it comes to negotiating tactics or wanting to even negotiate in the first place. And I talked earlier about a Russian motherland, a greater Russian motherland, a myth that he had created and tried to instill within his country and with his people. And so, for me personally, I feel that feminist foreign policy, what I like to talk about instead is fair foreign policy because I think that's easier for people to understand and what it means. So, fair foreign policy means that you are then no longer questioning the concept of feminism because that could be interpreted differently. And you also are no longer questioning whether feminism is a new colonial export from the global north to the global south. And when you talk about fairness, it becomes immediately obvious, even, a country's right to defend itself. And then there is less of this debate about feminism, what it means, whether it means war versus peace, whether it means weapons versus flowers, you know? And so I like to talk about fair foreign policy instead. I think it's just intuitively easier to understand.
0: Where does Singapore figure in the uh, FFP space? at I know they've been stalled with women diplomats such as Chan Yang Chi and Sia and Karen Tan and our current ambassadors to Hanoi and Paris are with. But uh, how far are we from an FFP?
1: Unfortunately, I think the answer is not at all. I hope we can move slowly in this direction. So for me, the benchmark would be Sweden. And they were the first country in the world to implement the FFP back in 2014. So some of the factors that they would put as benchmarks would be clear leadership on having such a policy, participation cooperation with women and girls and marginalized communities, this being set as a parity within the government, support with tools, training and resources, and focal points on FFP within departments and embassies abroad. So I hope Singapore can actually move slowly in this direction.
0: This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode. Let's continue the conversation with my guest, Eliani Abdulrahman, a former Singapore diplomat and co-founder of the Global Diplomacy Lab. As you know, the foreign minister of the largest ASEAN state, uh, Indonesia, is a woman, Retno Marsudi. And uh, if I were to ask you if uh, ASEAN states or rather more ASEAN states adopted a feminist foreign policy, how do you think we might approach issues like the South China Sea?
1: For me, feminist foreign policy is about fairness. So on issue like the South China Sea that like you mentioned, you'll be looking at two things. First, relationality, which is about interrogating institutional practices that determine norms. Second, context. So we need to pay attention to history, social and structural conditions, and relationships between actors. So the questions that need to be asked are, who are currently benefiting from this current situation? Who are the marginalized communities who are affected? Whose voices aren't being heard? And what historical injustices and structural inequities have led to this situation? I'm not an expert on South China Sea, but these questions are the kinds of questions that one needs to ask themselves when trying to apply feminist principles in foreign policy.
0: What about issues such as the uh, situation in Xinjiang, where there's alleged to be uh, severe human rights violations?
1: Well, I think, you know, the same principles would apply. So the alleged human rights violations in Xinjiang, you would then ask about the issue about fairness. What has led to this situation happening? Who are the people who are suffering? Why are the voices not being heard? And where are the inequities? Where are the structural inequities that have actually let this happen. So if we can actually look at this framing and see who the actors are in this situation, are we talking about the Chinese government? or Who are the actors who are taking into play? A lot of times it's very top-down. A feminist foreign policy will also include the voices of those who are on the ground who are actually affected by these human rights violations and to hear from them directly about what they need to change, what they need to see changed in order that their suffering will stop.
0: I was just shifting a bit from an FFP to the issue of women in foreign policy. Do you think male dominated societies such as Japan or China, for that matter, would it help if they had more women diplomats?
1: Representation matters. In post Vespalian diplomacy, the masculine state is the standard, if you will. Masculinity is associated with universality and objectivity, while alternatives are silenced or dismissed altogether. It is important to challenge this. More female diplomats may make it easier to overcome the gendered norms that exist in the foreign service. When you have more female diplomats in senior positions, it becomes easier to demand public commitment from the senior leadership for a feminist approach in foreign policy. At the same time, it also means more role models for girls and young women to follow.
0: One of the things we see in corporate life is that women sometimes seem to feel they need to act like men. And it's not just in corporate life. I've seen it with women police officers, for instance. Now, does this happen in diplomacy?
1: Well, the female diplomats I've had the pleasure of working with didn't see the need to act that way. But it's interesting because there is certainly a perception about how women are viewed in diplomacy. In 2020, Ambassador Elash Tomiko asked me to write a chapter in his book, video on Our Minds, but what it was like being a female diplomat in India. So I wrote about my experience being third-in-command at the Singapore embassy there. Whenever my colleagues and I met with older Indian bureaucrats and politicians, they tended to look to my male colleagues for the answers. At one National Day reception hosted by the Singapore High Commission, as I stood at the head of the receiving line to greet the guests, many of the Indian guests assumed that I was the spouse of a male colleague standing next to me. However. Being one of the few female diplomats in Delhi at a time also worked to my advantage. I suppose it was easier for people to remember me because I stood out.
0: <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, you know, just to flip the question around: Are there male diplomats who believe in a feminist foreign policy? What is your experience?
1: Yes. As you mentioned at the start of this call, I have just returned from a trip to Berlin last week where I spoke at a German federal foreign office on feminist foreign policy. One of the diplomats who attended was an old friend, but more than that, he called himself a feminist. I asked him in front of the audience, who were mainly female, what he did to promote feminist foreign policy in his work. And he gave examples like ensuring that women and girls were included in technical assistance programming. However, there are men who are threatened by the very concept of FFP and may not say so openly. They may show their resistance by arguing that the so-called traditional way of diplomacy is the best way, for example. Or there may be those who just conduct lip service. Unless there's real priority setting in terms of FFP, by using, for example, gender markers in terms of budgetary spending... Unless one prioritizes the status of women in assessing the socio-economic conditions of a partner country, it is just empty words. So let me conclude
0: by asking you if there are three things you'd suggest that Asian foreign ministries should adopt in this direction, what would they be?
1: I think that's a really good question. It's so powerful you know, to end our conversation this way, Ravi. I, I thank you for that. If we could look and approach feminist foreign policy in terms of setting, say, core principles and let that guide you in terms of your relations with stakeholders overseas. Because first of all, I believe that whatever we do, it, one, it should be incrementalistic in its goals. So that means you should build building blocks. That's one. Second, there should be multiple definitions of feminist foreign policy within the foreign ministries. And so it should be context specific and not a, a one-size-fits-all. And third, this will also apply across all elements of foreign policy. So development aid, technical assistance, trade, defense, culture, and then, of course, diplomacy itself. So then it's, you know, it's overarching. It's not just Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but working in concert with other ministries within the government.
0: Thank you, Liani, for appearing on Speaking of Asia. Those words were very interesting.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Ravi. I appreciate it.
0: And that's a wrap for Speaking of Asia, a podcast series by These Straits Times. I'm Ravi Velour. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and family. And if you'd like to read my articles, we have links in our podcast text below. The Asian Insider Podcast Channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.